Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. I think the January 6th investigation, based on my conversations with uh, witnesses, lawyers to witnesses, people familiar with the investigation is that this is one that's moving like a shark beneath the water. As Attorney General Bill Barr, the former AG, told me a few days ago, uh, he thinks Trump could be a target. Uh, Trump world is alarmed at how some people have gone quiet or very muted about in terms of their public comments or associations with Trump, which is stirring a lot of unease in Trump's circle about where is this January 6th investigation going? That's Robert Costa, the chief election and campaign correspondent at CBS News. He's also the co-author of the book Peril, which he wrote with Bob Woodward, and we're going to get into that in just a moment. But first, let me just welcome you right here to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. I'm Brian Stelter, and I'm back in the host chair because, well, there's just so much happening right now, and I want to dig into it every week with you. Today, we are talking about Donald Trump and the charges against him, whether there are more indictments coming, and what it could mean for the 2024 election. Costa is all over it. He's covering this story 24-7. So let's get back to him. I remember arriving to the Willard Hotel on January 5th, 2021, because I had heard rumors that something was going down. I, I, I Brian, to this day, I, I would never claim to have expected an insurrection in the United States of America. It was outside of the realm of political imagination, even of my personal imagination. But as any reporter would, you hear a rumor about something, you try to go check it out. And so I went there around nine, 10 o'clock at night. I called Woodward up. I said, I'm just going to hang here for a while. It, I remember it was freezing cold. The city was empty. People forget the pandemic was still going on during January 6th. And it was rats in the streets, emptiness, cops, and proud boys. And there was this fervor in the air that these people with military fatigues were gathering on this space outside the Willard Hotel near the JW Marriott Hotel as well called Freedom Plaza. It's kind of this flat concrete park that's adjacent to the Treasury Department and across the street from the Willard. And they were gathering there almost like it was a camp, like it reminded me of a military camp, mm. tents, uh, a lot of flags in the air. And they were cheering and, and screaming and playing music and singing songs. And there was a jubilation in the air. And I kind of kept my head down. I hung up by the back of the Willard watching these black SUVs go in and out of the back entrance. I heard Rudy Giuliani was coming in and out, that people from the White House could be coming out. Hmm. And it took me months to recognize and figure out that this music, this loudness I was hearing 
was also being heard by Trump uh, just a few steps away in the Oval Office listening, and he opened the door. And this has been confirmed not just by our book, but by under oath testimony in the January 6th committee and others that Trump opened the door on January 5th, 2021 to hear the mob outside. And he said to multiple people that night, these are my people. And what Trump mm. then did in the Oval Office was were, were two specific things we've reported and have been further and later confirmed under oath by people, is that Trump tried to organize a collective effort to pressure Republicans in Congress to block the certification of the election, even though there was no evidence that there was fraud. And then he tried to pressure Pence one final time, one-on-one -on -one in the Oval Office. And when Pence wouldn't do what Trump wanted and uh, Trump issued a statement in Pence's name through his campaign saying Pence agrees with me, a total lie. And so Trump, what we saw was pulling every lever of power. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people were involved. A lot of people were witnesses to this. I mean, our book has seen after scene of people walking in the Oval Office in the day before January 6th, talking to Trump as he rants and raves about what's going on and asks for people to do what he wants, do his bidding. And so that was kind of the first, reporters, always, it's a cliche, right? You, you write the first draft of history and we don't have every tool. We don't have subpoenas. And Jack Smith now, along with the other parts of the Justice Department, have been working for months over a year on trying to figure out all the different moving parts here, the Willard War Room with Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani, the Freedom Plaza, the violence outside, the alternate elector schemes going on in the states, because so much of this is complicated and, and almost it seems strange and not worth spending time on. But real quick, they all wanted to delay the certification, block it. For what reason, right? They always ask, hmm. well, why? The why here is because they wanted to give time for Trump allies in the states to hold so-called special sessions to resend the electoral slates to Washington. And in that scenario, the election could go into the House and Trump could win. It would be a zany way of winning, but they really saw it as a possibility. Mm. At the time, you and Woodward were putting peril together and, and then it came out in, in hardcover. Did, did you sense that all these dots were going to start to come together, that all they all connected to the point where a special counsel could be on the verge of indicting Trump for election interference? Not at all. And, and Brian, I think it's actually worth going back to September 2021 when this book came out. Yeah. Almost two years ago. Because I'll give you a real quick example. Like we had a document in our book that we found during the course of our reporting. And it outlined what we th believed was a blueprint for a coup. And it was written by a conservative lawyer named John Eastman. And we tucked it in the book and Woodward and I, during the course of the reporting, said to ourselves, well, this, this is quite a document. We should put it just in the book. And so we actually got the graphic designers and the help at Simon & Schuster to put the actual document in the book. And, uh, and after it came out, uh, our friend Jamie Gangel at CNN, who I know is a friend of yours, she saw this document in the book and her eyes popped out and she yes, goes, yes. this is unbelievable. Yeah. And we didn't lead our reporting with the Eastman memo because we just thought Mark Milley's behind the scenes machinations to preserve the integrity of the military and his call with the Chinese general, General Lee. There were so many other things in the book. We, we thought the Eastman document <laughs> was important. But after the book came out and it kind of played out for a few months, I, I was talking to Chuck Todd at NBC and he pulled me aside and he said, you know, if this book's going to be remembered for anything a lot down the line, it may be this Eastman memo because it's a piece of evidence that is now having reverberations even more than a year later. Just this week, 
John Eastman now, he's being under uh, scrutiny about whether he can still practice law in California. He's before the bar in California. And so much of this comes down to what is on paper. Mm. And, and Bob Woodward, I give so much credit to because he would always push me to ask sources, what else don't we know? Do you have any emails? Do you have any documents you could huh. share? And never assume that people won't share things. Oh. But you have to ask. You have to ask. Mm. I remember two or three days after the January 6th attack thinking it was so much worse than it looked on live TV. No, no matter how terrible it looked in real time, the videos that came out later from police body cams, from witnesses, you know, we realized the, the scope of the violence only days after the attack. And it sounds like there's a version of that that's true in the pre-January 6th period as well, that there were some dots, there were some signs of trouble, but the, the full picture, the full scope of this attempt to steal the election was not clear for a while later. And, uh, and and that includes for you with, with peril in September 2021. And then in 2022, we, we learned more through the January 6th hearings. And now here we are in 2023. And the sense you have, it sounds like, is the special counsel knows a lot more than we do today. The special counsel knows so much. I mean, I can't wait to see what subpoena power has dug up that reporting could not. I mean, I just want to, mm. as a reporter, just learn more about the truth about what happened. I think it's very important for the truth to come out here. I mean, you look at history, what has happened here with January 6th, I think remains a systemic shock to the American system. It's an open wound that hasn't healed in American democracy. And I live in Alexandria, Virginia. And sometimes I go down to Mount Vernon where George Washington lived. And you think about Washington, why was Washington so powerful and such a great leader? Because he decided to leave on his own. He left after his term had ended. The transfer of power and the idea of the institution of the presidency being something that was in the hands of the people, not the person who was in the office, is, is something that can be traced back to the origin of American democracy and our constitutional founding. And f for hundreds of years, for more than two centuries, while there have been fits and starts, no doubt about it, American democracy has largely functioned in terms of the presidency, at least yielding a successor in a peaceful way. Uh, and that has been mostly the case for a long time. But Trump, by trying to stay in power on the false premise of fraud, he has ruptured this entire – it's not even a norm. It's like a foundational beam of the whole country. <laughs> we talk about shattering norms. Norms are behaviors and kind of practices. This is – like taking the keystone out of something that, that mm -hmm. holds it all together. Mm -hmm. and, and look, the special counsel deserves as much scrutiny as any other subject. Uh, and I think the Washington Post in recent days did a good job of scrutinizing whether the Attorney General Merrick Garland and DOJ move fast enough to look at not just the conspiracy in terms of the violence, but the possible conspiracy in terms of the top down. I mean, I think about that scene in Spotlight where Marty Barron played by Liev Schreiber says, you know, he pushes the reporters, go deeper. I want you to report on the Catholic Church from the top down because it's always about what's the decision at the top hmm. that's feeding all this at the bottom versus just trying to pick apart who are those committing the crimes at the, the bottom end of a whole operation. And hmm. uh, I, I had the uh, pleasure of working with Marty Barron, the real one, at the Post for <laughs> about seven, eight years. And institutional corruption is such a theme of what he taught us at the Post, and it's a theme of this story in January 6th. Yes, violence happened, but what prompted it? 
who stirred it, what else was going on. Yes. And and that Washington Post headline you mentioned, uh, it says FBI resisted opening probe into Trump's role in January 6th for more than a year. So, you know, you, you made you made the point, uh, Bob, it's, it's been more than two years since the attack, since the attempt at uh, stealing the election. You know, we, we might have known a lot more a lot sooner uh, were it not for, for the DOJ's uh, slow walking of this. So you mentioned Bill Barr and in your interview on CBS's Face the Nation with Bill Barr. Here's what you asked the former Trump attorney general. Have you talked to them in any way behind the scenes, if well, not I'm formal not, testimony? Well, I'm not going to get into any communications I had with the government, but I don't expect to be a witness, but I'll be glad to be one if I'm called. Trump was just indicted and arraigned in the records case. Do you believe he's a target potentially in the January 6th case? Yes. And I've said from the beginning, by the way, I've defended him when I think there's cases that are unfair, like the one up in New York and so forth. Uh, And I've always said, I think the January 6th case will be a hard case to make because of First Amendment interests. But I'm actually starting to think they will pull the trigger on that. And I would expect it to be this summer. So that was news, Bob, as you know, that was heard uh, wide and far over the weekend. Um, this idea that it happened over the summer, is that what you've also picked up from from sources? It is, and that's why I, I asked the former attorney general about it, and not to get ahead of it too much, but I really think that January 6th exchange might linger in uh, in our reporting world for a while because – what I keep hearing is that January 6th as a special counsel investigation is moving very quickly because the special counsel wants to get this done as soon as possible before it's a year before the election in November of 2024. And so timing is of the essence. They don't want to have witnesses being called and grand jury deposition deep into the fall or even the winter of next year when Trump is in primaries and debates because then you really risk something being seen as political uh, already well, it's election politically interference. charged. It's already going to be called election interference. Yeah, that's right. It's already it, Trump's already painting this all as a, a political attack from President Biden and Attorney General Merrick Garland. But as Garland has said, he's underscored it. This is an independent special counsel investigation. Yes, Garland is a appointee of President Biden, but Biden's not directing the special counsel and, and neither is Garland. And, and what's Really intriguing here about the January 6th story is that if this special counsel was willing to indict Trump in a pretty straightforward way on illegal alleged retention of classified documents, obstruction of an investigation, how deep is he willing to go on a possible conspiracy to overturn an election and block a certification mm-hmm. inside Congress? If the special counsel is going to have a, a, a really locked down, nailed down case, He's likely going to need cooperation from people who are inside. Now, it does not seem like Rudy Giuliani or Steve Bannon, who were very close to Trump at the time, and as Woodward and I have reported, these phone logs show Trump talking to them all the time in and around January 6th. But I do wonder about Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, who's been quite quiet in recent months, uh, whether he is in any way under pressure from the Justice Department and what that pressure could yield Mm. in terms of possible testimony or cooperation, because as Cassidy Hutchison, Meadows' former aide, testified before the January 6th committee. She saw documents being potentially destroyed or secret meetings where things were going on inside the White House. And we haven't heard from a lot of these star January 6th committee witnesses in a long time. And you know Mm. that the special counsel is looking at the January 6th committee as a a kind of template for what to do. And Barr, the reason I Mm. wanted to talk to Barr was Barr was the star witness in many ways for the January 6th committee. And he certainly didn't shoot down the idea that he's spoken or engaged with the Justice Department, even if he hasn't been a, quote, formal witness. 
Yes, he essentially indicated that he has had communications with the government, and thus he's not going to get into them. Stand by. We'll have more with Robert Costa in just a minute. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. So this idea that the timeline here could be the summer and onward, how, how would you see this playing out given the primaries are around the corner? Your point about the special counsel wanting to move quickly is really interesting because the first GOP debate is August 23rd. Trump has not closed the door to attending, but he definitely hasn't committed to showing up either. Uh, so, so he would argue and his allies would argue they are already in the middle of an election campaign, an election season. The first primaries are next winter. So what could this timeline look like if there is an indictment on election interference charges? I think we're looking at possible multiple indictments in the summer. You're looking at already a a trial date has been set for August for the classified documents, though that's likely going to be pushed months down the line into the election season due to the classification of the records and the access lawyers want during the discovery process is going to be complicated. So you might not see the trial on records begin until the winter of 23 or early 24, if not longer. Jack Smith, the special counsel, said he wants a speedy trial on the documents. You have a New York trial that's on the horizon for the hush money payments. Already, Trump has been indicted there, and uh, trial could begin sometime in the next six to 10 months in New York, uh, though that could be a slow process for a variety of reasons. Mm. And then the special counsel, if he moves on January 6th, that could be taking place in Washington, D.C., which is where the, the crimes took place, while in Florida, the federal crime uh, indictment and trial plays out in a court near Palm Beach, Florida, where uh, Trump had his records at Mar-a-Lago. And don't forget, we're sitting and waiting for what Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County, Georgia district attorney does with her investigation. And that's the one that I'm really starting to dig into because mm. I've been down to Georgia multiple times to talk to different people. And what Fonnie Willis, to, to not overdo this, but Fonnie Willis is known for doing what are what are called RICO-style prosecutions, which which is the way the mafia is often prosecuted, which is if you're going to bring a conspiracy criminal case against someone, you bring it against often a group of people involved. So you're looking potentially at a Georgia prosecution that involves could involve Rudy Giuliani and Trump and 
different state lawmakers or different associates of Trump all being indicted under the same prosecutorial umbrella called RICO uh, to have a criminal conspiracy case. And that, that investigation is effectively done. A special grand jury, kind of like a sidebar grand jury, did all these depositions and listened to a lot of testimony. And now they've concluded and written a report. Now the question is, does Fonnie Willis want to bring charges? And every indication is she very well could. She's already alerted security officials in Atlanta to be on edge and ready for possible protests starting in late July into early August. Mm-hmm. You know, tell me if you think what I'm about to say is totally off base, but you know, you, you, we talk about the New York indictment and the uh, special counsel indictment in Florida, you know, they can be dismissed and I don't believe this, but they can be dismissed as well. That the first one's about documents. The other one's about boxes. Now, obviously it's classified material, but you know, Trump has had a messaging war so far that has said, you know, that, that was about, that was about paperwork. Those were about boxes, my, my belongings. I think there's something more, you know, maybe emotional, more compelling about the election interference charges if they come, you know, because everybody does remember January 6th and, and saw it with their own eyes. Um, I think thus far, this has been a big, big story for political junkies, obviously, right? For, for cable news fans. Um, but I don't know how much it's broken through to the average casual news consumer or average American. Um, I did think there was a striking detail in CNN's recent polling, which did show some impact to Trump from the recent news. It showed that the people paying the closest attention to the Trump indictment were his voters, you know, to his supporters. And folks who were paying less attention were, you know, Democrats, independents, but, you know, Trump fans, Trump believers were, according to this poll, paying the most attention to it, which I thought was intriguing. Um, and I, I, I think this is this is one of those classic time will tell situations, right? We're we're gonna, you know, we will know in weeks and months what the impact of these indictments are on the Trump base. And I, and I do wonder, you know, as a reporter, how how much is like someone like Bill Barr breaking through with those voters, right? People who served alongside Trump are some of his sharpest critics now. I'm sitting right. down. Right. This week for, with John Bolton, the former national security advisor for America Decides, our streaming show on CBS News. And I'm going to go deep with Bolton. What did you see about how Trump was potentially cavalier with documents? What did he take back uh, to the residents? And what did he take out of the Oval Office? Do you ever feel like he jeopardized national security? And Bolton, he's been a fixture on Fox News for years. He's as conservative as they come on most most policies. But he and Barr, is, even as much as they're conservative, they, I, I just wonder, do people care when Mike Pence says, I'm not sure if Trump follows the rule of law, and Bill Barr says, this is a troubled man, uh, or John Bolton comes on America Decides and goes, this guy is ridiculous and a national security threat. You know, who's listening right. to them? I don't know. It depends on whether Trump is your identity or not, I think, right? Because I, I, I'm i of the view, and maybe people think this is too generous, that there are lots of different kinds of Republican voters and lots of different kinds of folks who say they support Trump when asked by a pollster. But in fact, you know, if you, if you break it apart a little bit and make it more complicated, there's folks for whom Trump is an identity, uh, something they wear, sometimes physically, <laughs> if you look, look at these Trump rallies. Um, but then there's lots and lots of other folks who, you know, they're they're Republicans and they support the Republican contender and the past president. Uh, I don't know. Do, do you think that's fair? I mean, you, you spend a lot more time talking to voters than I do about this. Yeah, one of the reasons I like being a campaign trail reporter and try to get out there as much as I can is just to talk to voters. And it's clear that Trump has, among Republicans in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, a real well of support. And they see him as kind of one of them. He has this right. outsider ethos, whether you think it's fair or not. He's built that reputation in a pretty 
deep way with Republican voters, and it hasn't gone away despite all of these uh, investigations and uh, examples of alleged misconduct and potential Ill- illegality and conspiracy. He's seen as culturally, um, sp- almost spiritually, politically uh, one of them or an advocate for them and their views, whether it's been protecting their views on the culture, on the courts, on politics. And so there's a lot of bandwidth for them and a lot of leeway for Trump yeah. to, to really kind of do whatever he wants. And it's made it, made it very hard for someone like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to break through because Trump, if you see him as a bulwark against things you do not like or things you think are encroaching on your own life, then you're going to defend him even if he has done things that are indefensible. He's the common common thread that kind of holds you with the Republican Party. The thing I just keep noticing anecdotally is that so many Republican voters feel like they're not welcome in certain areas of their community or school. They feel for whatever reason, maybe it's irrational because of something they've heard on a media broadcast or read in some article, but they have this feeling of isolation in their own country, even if it's not merited or true. And that starts to really feed their own support for Trump as they see him under siege. There's a kind of connection to themselves feeling under siege, whether it's about the curriculum in their kids' schools or what they're able to say at the workplace. There's this simmering anger, and it's hard for me to kind of capture that in my reporting a lot, but that to me bonds Trump with people despite everything he does. I'm always asked by people when I come back from the field, why aren't people changing their minds? Like, Don't they follow all of this? And it's like, yes, they follow it actually, but they don't weigh it in the way you weigh it. And that's a real benefit for Trump and may make him the nominee once again. That's why Strangers in Their Own Land is one of the most important books to understand politics. It, it came out in 2016 you know, by this sociologist who spent years covering the Tea Party movement in Louisiana and hearing people say they felt like strangers in their own country. They felt that isolation. Uh, and, and I agree with you, Bob. It's hard to, how do you capture that in reporting? I mean, I remember seeing you on the trail last year uh, in Warminster, Pennsylvania. You were there to cover the Senate candidate, Doug Mastriano, who was about to lose. And you were the last reporter there. It was starting to rain. Everybody else had packed up. You were still there. Uh, you, you know, how, how do you? What do you call that? Is that hustle? <laughs> what, what's your approach to reporting? Where you're, you're always there. It's, it's. I mean, that's nice of you to call it hustle. I, I would call it curiosity because, like Doug Mastriano, he seems at one level to be. Why would you even pay attention to this kind of fringe candidate in Pennsylvania uh, running for governor? Josh Shapiro, the Democrat, seemed like he had it locked up. But I wanted to go see. Mastriano, for that same reason you read Strangers in Their Own Land. The media needs to really capture what's happening on the right. And I'm not talking about going to a diner with a Trump voter and asking them, how do you feel today about Trump? It's about going to see Doug Mastriano up close. And sometimes just going tells you everything. The truth reveals itself. And as you remember, Brian, all I had to do was try to go up to this Doug Mastriano event in Pennsylvania. And I was encountered and stopped by these Mastriano guys in tough trench coats. And one of them was wearing like a pirate hat and a pirate mask. And they were (laughs) deeply serious that the media wasn't invited, wasn't allowed. And it almost became an altercation, but I wanted to go up and try to cover this event. But it, it was such a microcosm of American politics now. And you were right there with me, Brian, that sometimes you go to a Republican event and you're not even able to cover it because (laughs) it's its own world and the media isn't welcome. And it's not even about 
not answering questions, which was kind of the old school way of ignoring the media. You just wouldn't take questions. Now you're not even let indoors because you're seen <laughs> as the enemy. And I think that's the real problem for the press right now hmm. is we're politicized. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. You're 100% right about some Republicans dodging interviews, dodging the press. But, you know, Trump, actually, to his credit, he's out there. He's giving interviews. Let's let's listen to Brett Baer's interview with Trump uh, from Fox earlier in the week. This, by the way, was booked before the indictment from the special counsel. So, you know, Trump had already committed to sitting down with Brett Baer. It was a big deal for Baer because he hadn't interviewed Trump in years. But then to have that first uh, post-indictment interview uh, turned out to be quite a big deal. Let's play part of it. The only way Nara could ever get this stuff this back would be please 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 could we have it back and they please, asked for that. because they have no we they were did talking ask for it. no and they said can you give some, the documents back and we were talking and then they said they went to doj to subpoena you to get them which back. they've never done before right. and, and in why fairness, not just hand them over then because i had boxes i want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out i don't want to hand that over to nara yet and I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. Yeah, but I've according very, to the indictment, busy. you then tell this aide to move to other locations after telling your lawyers to say you'd fully complied with the subpoena when you hadn't. But before I send boxes over, I have to take all of my things out. These boxes were interspersed with all sorts of things. There was this reaction on Twitter afterwards, Bob, that was saying, you know, why would Trump do this interview? Why would he be talking about this? He's hurting his legal case. Did you perceive it that way as well? Well, Todd Blanche is this white shoe attorney who Trump has running his classified documents case for him, yet he still has only so much limited power, clearly, if Trump's giving these interviews to Fox News. I mean, Trump's out there talking about a federal indictment after his arraignment in detail about his conduct and tension where he's alleged to have engaged in criminal acts. And the hard thing for Trump to to maybe recognize here is that Anything you say in the public's domain is equivalent to testimony. It can be used as evidence or played in a court. So even if Trump decides not to testify under oath in, in a potential trial here, this, this interview could clearly be played for a jury. And to bring the conversation full circle, uh, back to your interview with Bill Barr, uh, Bayer mentioned that, uh, mentioned part of uh, Barr's comment to you, uh, right to Trump's face. Uh, I think we should play that exchange where Bayer basically brings up uh, right to Trump all the folks who he hired who don't support him. In 2016, you said that. I'm going to surround myself with only the best and most serious people. Well, I did do that. This and we time, had tremendous, look, we had the best economy we've ever had. This the world time, has ever seen. Your vice president, Mike Pence, is running against you. Yeah. Your ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley. She's 
she's running against you. Your former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, said he's not supporting you. You mentioned National Security Advisor John Bolton. He's not supporting you either. You mentioned Attorney General Bill Barr, uh, says you shouldn't be president again, uh, calls you the consummate narcissist and troubled man. You recently called and uh, Barr a, a gutless pig. Uh, your second defense secretary is not supporting you, called you irresponsible. This week, you and your White House called your White House Chief of Staff, John Kelly, weak and ineffective and born with a very small brain. You called your acting White House Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney, a born loser. You called your first Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, dumb as a rock. And your first Defense Secretary, James Mattis, the world's most overrated general. You called your White House Press Secretary, Kayla Kennedy, milquetoast. And multiple times, you've referred to your Transportation Secretary, Elaine Chao, as Mitch McConnell's China-loving wife. So... Why did you hire all of them in the first place? Because I hired 10 to 1 that were fantastic. Bob, there's a lot of ways we could take that, but I want to ask you an interviewing technique question. I remember growing up at CNN being taught short questions. Keep it short, right? Let Give the guests all the time to answer. But, but in that case, Bear does something really interesting by going on for two or three paragraphs, giving so many examples. I, I kind of think it's brilliant. I, I was curious for your read on that as a strategy when interviewing someone like Trump. Well, I think on a, on a television level, Bear was clever because he did a taped interview with Trump. And because of that, the post-production enabled Bear and Fox News to put the images of all these people over Bear asking the oh, questions. Great I think point. That's right. I think it had a lot more power because when you watch it, you're seeing these pictures of each of them, kind of like a deck of cards being flashed in front of you. If it was done in a live setting, I don't think it would have landed in the same way because you would have just been watching Brett Bear talk. But Brett mm. Bear ends up narrating these images, which becomes such a powerful question. And then it cuts to Trump kind of shrugging, well, 10 to 1, I think I did a good job. And it has a lot of power. And it has a lot of power in the sense of all these people have broken with Trump, but the Republican Party hasn't broken with Trump. And that's the, that's the conundrum here for so many Republicans who are part of that more traditional, conservative, whatever you want to call it, the establishment. They bought in with Trump in a big way. Bill Barr was with Trump for 95% of the journey. So was John Bolton for part of it. I mean, th these people were with Trump and now they're against Trump. And the party's base, though, hasn't had that same flip of behavior or allegiance. And it's hard if you were so gung-ho about Trump at one point to mm. suddenly be someone who really carries the party away from him. And I keep coming back to early 2021, too. They all yeah. had an opportunity in the Senate Republican conference to say he's gone. Mm. He, can, he can never run again. They could have convicted him in a Senate trial. That's a great and point. I, and they did not. Now, I, they all make different arguments that they, they didn't like how the House prosecuted the impeachment. They didn't like this or that. Look, it, there are legitimate cases you can make on anything about why you're not going to vote a certain way. But let it never be forgotten that the Republican Party had at crossroads where they could have formally said he could never run for office again, uh, for the presidency at least, if they had convicted him in a Senate trial. And they chose not to do that. And they're now dealing with that reckoning. Mm-hmm. So, Pop, thank you for being my first guest as I'm back in the in the chair here. You know, you described at the very beginning the special counsel probe into January 6th as the shark beneath the surface. And I think you've helped us all see that shark. So thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. And that was Bob Costa of CBS News. 
This episode was produced by Michael May. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. And we had engineering assistance from Jake Loomis and mixing by Bob Mallory. I'm Brian Stelter. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Stelter. You can also email me anytime, bstelter at gmail.com. We'd love to know who you'd like to hear from and what you'd like to hear about on future episodes of Inside the Hive. We will be back in your podcast feed next week. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs>